Hi everyone, I'm David DiMalfetta, a reporter in Washington, D.C., covering tech policy for the tech, media, and telecom news team of S&P Global Market Intelligence. Welcome to Media Talk, an S&P Global podcast where our news and research staff explore issues in the ever-evolving media landscape. Today, we're talking about digital assets, but with a bit of a twist. This month, we ran a story showing how people of color are tapping more into cryptocurrency investing than many out there perceive. As the Biden administration begins planning its feet to research digital assets further, Black, Latinx, and other leaders in the crypto world who have spent their lives building wealth on the blockchain are now worried that a new digital divide will present itself if their voices are not properly heard. So why is this inclusion aspect so important? We're going to hear why today, alongside a breakdown of the demographics from two special guests. Cleb Mesador, a former economic development official in the U.S. Department of Commerce during the Obama administration, and now executive director and policy advisor at the Blockchain Association, joins us from here in Washington. Cleb is an active voice in the blockchain and cryptocurrency education world who recently ran a Capitol Hill rally calling for more inclusion in the digital asset space. With us also is Jordan McKee. He joins us from just outside the Beltway in Bethesda, Maryland, leading coverage of the payments ecosystem at 451 Research, a unit of S&P Global Market Intelligence. Jordan recently authored a report on the state of crypto adoption, showing that most users are treating crypto more like an asset than a method of payment, and that ease of use and education issues rank as the top barriers to increasing adoption in the crypto space. Jordan and Clev, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Great, Jordan. I want to go to you first. I gave a 10,000-foot overview of that crypto report that you drafted up, but I'm wondering if you could give us a further breakdown of the numbers, talk about any surprising trends you saw when looking at the demographics, and just in general, as we kick into the conversation, if you could give us a sense of the terminology that we'll be looking at here today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, thanks for having me, David. Uh, great to be on the podcast. So, you know, we'll be talking about a few different things today, one of which, of course, are cryptocurrencies, which uh, I think the, the textbook definition for a cryptocurrency would be, you know, a digital currency in which transactions are verified and records are being maintained by a decentralized system, uh, such as blockchain using cryptography. And blockchain, of course, uh, is a shared, distributed, immutable digital letter ledger uh, of transactions, which is going to be created by and accessible by parties within a given network. So, you know, sort of level setting on terminology there, um, you know, I'll share with you a bit about the survey we conducted. So this was a survey we fielded back in Q1 of this year uh, with about 1,600 U.S. consumers. And really the goal was to better understand how they're engaging with cryptocurrencies. And I would say the overarching message from that survey is that it's still somewhat early days here. Uh, about 20% of respondents overall indicated that they had participated in cryptocurrency in some way, shape, or form. They'd either bought, traded, or received crypto. And as you'd expect, a lot of that activity skewed towards younger generations. It jumped up to about a third of Gen Z consumers. 35% of millennials, and then it trailed off pretty quickly as we got into older generations, just 6% of baby boomers, 1% of the greatest generation. Uh, you know, a few additional call-outs for you that I found pretty interesting, right? So we saw some notable differences in a few other areas. 28% uh, of males had engaged with cryptocurrencies in some way, shape, or form, just 12% of females. Uh, we saw some differences as it related to the respondent's location, 31% of consumers in urban areas just 15% in rural areas, 16% in suburban areas. And we also saw some pretty big differences with income. And just to give you a little bit more context 
on you know how these respondents that indicated they had used cryptocurrencies were actually using them you know really the headline is that while most cryptocurrency users are buying these coins a much smaller percentage are selling them and even smaller percentage are using them as a payment method less than one in five of those uh, that own cryptocurrencies have actually used it to make a payment so really the big message here is you know, most cryptocurrency users today treating it more like an asset kind of like a stock my hunch is the overwhelming majority of consumers you know probably haven't actually moved their cryptocurrencies from the exchange where they purchased them into a wallet and just to quickly wrap up here david i'll give you a little context on uh, the non-users right because that was the the majority of the sample 80 percent of respondents had not used cryptocurrencies the three biggest adoption inhibitors that we saw uh, one lack of understanding of the blockchain two lack of investing in general and three the overall complication of purchasing cryptocurrency and you know on that latter point there i think you know at least two of those factors can probably be addressed through further education and user experience improvements in crypto exchanges and wallets so you know in summary about a fifth of consumers are using cryptocurrency today in some way shape or form here in the us a lot of that activity skewing towards younger and more affluent consumers and among those that are actually using crypto you know the general trend is around treating it more like an asset with the hope that it's going to appreciate in value over time jordan that's great thanks so much for the breakdown there clev i wanted to jump to you now uh that was a pretty comprehensive uh outline of the report anything from there surprise you and tying in our coverage on this that I chatted with you about on the Ariel Schwab uh, Black Investor Survey, could you uh, perhaps contribute to the demographic breakdown a bit further and talk about how people of color are getting involved in crypto investing and, and digital assets? Yes, yes. So, you know, Jordan's research is wonderful, but, you know, it's important to note that the majority of that usage is happening among Black and Latino communities. Why? It's because, you know, communities that have a relationship with money, a relationship with the traditional financial system that has not been so positive, look to alternatives. Even when we look at the fintech space, the reason the fintech space grew and actually became prevalent is because these companies recognize that people were operating outside of the traditional financial system. People were finding ways to transact and fintechs leverage that. And so for communities of color, alternative options are not seen necessarily as risky. It's the traditional financial system that's actually seen as risky. Now, a lot of people would think that that's just the unbanked, right? You know, in the US, that estimation is about 65 to 70 million people. But it's not, right? It's also professionals like myself, a Gen Xer, with a master's degree from Howard University that makes really good money, but I've never been treated the same way by wealth managers or by banks, right? I'm more likely to get pushed in a subprime predatory loan than my contemporaries. And even Black and Latino small businesses and nonprofits face this as well. So I anticipate we're going to see adoption growing within Black and Latino communities. And again, that's at that core is what is that relationship with money? And it, going back to how people are using cryptocurrencies specifically, 
Yes, absolutely. I think because there's more options for holding right now than for transacting. And I think, you know, we know that there are thousands of cryptocurrencies, but I think as we go more into stable coins and opportunities for payment platforms that are based on a stable coin that's pegged to an asset, we're going to see more of payment opportunities that are faster, cheaper, and, and can ensure um, uh, those transactions are automated in a, again, cheap and fast way as well. But I would say for the Black and Latino community, I've been in this space for about six years. There are people who have been in this place over the last decade who have been doing this education. It was not the industry that actually led to this high adaption. It was innovators of color who went into our communities. But I would say for us, we are not just looking to cryptocurrencies. We're absolutely looking at blockchain. We're looking at the technology and its applications for ownership. There's a lot of talk about privacy, and privacy is important. But when when communities of color look at the potential for blockchain technology, it is this opportunity for ownership. So there's lots of projects, obviously a small scale, where Black and Latino innovators are building products and services on blockchain to address inequity, to tackle financial inclusion. And I think once we actually start looking at, you know, use cases and utility and, you know, beyond, you know, the store value that is really driving products and services right now for large companies, we're going to see the adaption is pretty comprehensive among Black and Latino communities. And obviously, you know, Jordan's research shows, obviously that skews younger. I'm a Gen Xer. But for the audience, right now we live in a marketplace that's dominated by four generations, right? Baby boomers, we know, you know, they own the wealth. Gen Xers like myself, you know, we're a small generation, but we're a pretty powerful generation. And obviously millennials, the largest generation since boomers, you know, really created the sharing economy that has really made decentralization, you know, possible. And then Zoomers, those in high school and college right now that somehow have the most disposable income who will really be you know the the, the generation that really commercializes and cre- creates a true marketplace for crypto i hope that's helpful great yeah club thank you uh, you, you had touched on the inclusion bit just now I, I want to uh, go over to the crypto rally that I had attended that uh, you were running. This this played a big role in the written story I, I did on this topic. Talk a bit about who showed up and then tying in Jordan's remarks and research at the start here. What was the big takeaway from the rally? What were participants trying to tell onlookers, uh, the U.S. government, anyone else who's interested in the crypto space? What was the big message? Yes, you know, so I collaborate with leaders across the, you know, Black and Latino community within crypto. And one of the impetus for this rally was a frustration by, you know, these innovators who have been in this space for over the last decade, you know, who are, you know, critical in terms of not just, you know, operating as software and hardware developers who are miners and stakers who work at, at these large companies. But we feel, you know, we are hidden figures that we are in the in the in the blind spots of policymakers, in some cases, the industry, but also of, you know, the media to a large degree. So we thought about how do we actually have a voice? So many of these leaders that participated, they all they well, actually, all of them represent large networks of communities. So the plan was to be in Washington, right, having that bully pull 
pulpit where we would we knew would get the attention of obviously members of Congress, the media, but as well as the industry as well. And we had leaders fly in from California, from Ohio, coming from New York, from Atlanta, you know, because the in, the industry leaders who you know really feel that they drove that adoption that we're seeing, right? They're the ones in the U.S. that are really driving commercialization of crypto. When you look at the industry, the focus is on the 1.7 billion across the world, across the globe that are unbanked. You know, I'm sure there's you know the estimation of 65 to 75 you know million on banks here is probably less of a market opportunity but for innovators of color we are tackling it at that level so for us the rally on april 4th was really to send that message and we were so happy that so many people came from across the country we did get their attention and and one of the outcomes is senator cory booker who you know is on the Senate Agricultural Committee? Senate Agricultural Committee that actually has oversight over the CFTC. You know his staffer reached out and said, "Hey, we'd love to talk to some of these leaders." And you know we're actually doing a roundtable, a one-hour roundtable, where the senator is going to be sitting with the Black and Latino leaders. And it, interestingly, I, I suggested we do a Q&A, and they said, yes, we should. The senator is going to ask these leaders questions. And while we, I expected that, you know, they would ask him questions about policy, but he is very interested in learning. I think even for when we see policymakers, as they're looking at how to move this conversation forward, right? How to expand the com- the debate that's been happening in Washington. What I'm seeing is people want to talk about how, you know, wh- what's, what are the implications for future of work, right? What are the implications for entrepreneurship and small business growth? What are the implications for financial literacy? Because when we look at the 1990s, when did we debated the internet, we didn't have those conversations. And look at where we are today, a bit of a policy theme that prevailed throughout the rally was uh, actually coming from the top of the food chain in the U.S. government. The Biden administration in March rolled out a sweeping executive order calling for financial regulatory agencies to research digital assets further. Clev, could you give us a breakdown of that? And Jordan, I'd love to hear your reactions uh, to this as well, whether or not we think it's a good step in the right direction for the future of the digital asset world. And, you know, let's be honest, right, the executive order really is just looking for a study, right? It's really looking for agencies across the federal government to look at what oversight do they have right now, right? What are some of the risks and opportunities that they see? And in some cases, like commerce, what is a potential framework that could, you know, could play? So, and I think that's important because we do need to know which agencies have, you know, jurisdiction, have oversight to, to figure out where we need more or where we need less, Especially since we're still working through, you know, is this is is our cryptos a security or a commodity? And I think there's too many. The space is too dynamic that it will fall into one category. But but taking it back to financial inclusion, I was happy that that was one of the areas that the executive order focused on as well. Because let, let's be honest, as we enter this innovation age, where the innovation economy is going to be driven by emerging technologies like blockchain and cryptocurrency, we cannot afford to continue to leave people behind. Monetary 
monetary policy has to be f- focused on closing this wealth gap that exists in this country. Yeah, those are all great points, Clev. And maybe just quickly to piggyback on your point around financial inclusion, I definitely see that as one of the prominent drivers that has governments around the world thinking about cryptocurrencies and and really a driver that's pushing monetary authorities down the path of CBDCs or or central bank digital currencies. And when I think about CBDCs, I mean, really uh, in the purest form, right, the, the goal should be to empower consumers that lack access to traditional financial services with digital payment capabilities abilities that perhaps they never had access to before. And that can unlock you know, a whole host of positive benefits. It can allow consumers to establish a financial identity, to receive government aid, to send remittances back to family, and so on and so forth. So that financial inclusion aspect, I think, is one of the real powerful things about how this market is evolving and, and where it could head to in the future. It's interesting. Technology will never solve inequity. So tech- technology, you know, is just a tool and it takes, you know, the will of people to actually l- use technology to actually create a, a new pa- pathway that is inclusive, that we're not embedding bias in the design. And I think that would be the test of, you know, how we move forward. And I think that's also important as when we think about why we can't rush to, you know, regulate by enforcement, why we have to look at the impact on, on all communities. I, it's, it's been interesting to see so many people are, I would use the word uncomfortable <laughs> with the fact that Black and Latino, you know, investors are leading, you know, the adaption here because there's something that it, it just made sense that it would be wealthy white males, Right. And so there's all these conversations about you know, the questions about, well, are we educated? Do, you know, is there risk? And I, I would say that rural communities, urban communities, even those who are unbanked or have been locked out, are very prudent about their, their, their financial freedom and their financial needs and are looking for opportunities. So I don't think, you know, government, whether it be the executive order or Congress, I don't think government should continue on this path of consumer protection because protectionism equates patriarchy. Everybody should have protection. We need more empowerment, right? So if we're concerned about risk, we need to we need our government to invest more in financial literacy. We need more investment in skills training. We need greater options for access to capital for entrepreneurs. And then we have to change the system. The way right now things work is those funds go to the same usual suspects. We're at the phase of imp- the implementation of the infrastructure law that has a lot of money for this stuff, but it goes to the same entities that send it to the same group groups that are not connected with the communities that have impact. Similar to the PPP loan that had the greatest of intentions, right? Target e-commerce businesses, you know, independent contractors. And what was the result? The majority of the money went to hedge funds, wealthy businesses, because we didn't change the system. We didn't change the parameters. So banks did what they need to do to be compliant. They went to their typical clients. Let's talk about it a bit more, actually. Looking ahead here, it's, it's clear that uh, from what we're hearing from both Clev and Jordan today, there has to be a, a proper way to do this. I'm wondering if both of you can jump in here. What happens if we don't enact inclusive adoption of digital assets in the right way? What are the societal and economic costs? What about costs to banks, costs to legacy institutions, costs to general welfare? Uh, Jordan, can we go to you first? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I would go back to many of the points that Clev has already raised. I mean, when I think about cryptocurrency and I kind of take a big step back, really the big opportunity I see is is this chance to create an open, universally accessible, interoperable protocol for money movement on the internet. And if we think about our current global financial system, there's a lot that doesn't work with it, right? It's not interoperable. It wasn't built for the internet. Um, it's certainly quite expensive and it's definitely not inclusive, right? Our, our global financial system disenfranchises many of the most vulnerable in our population. And as Clive had alluded to, even in the US, you know, a quarter to a third of our population is either unbanked or underbanked. You look at the world in its entirety, that figure is somewhere to the tune of about 1.7 billion people and another billion people or so that are underserved by financial services. And there are all these fees associated with minimum balances and need a physical address, need a government ID, so on and so forth, right? There's a lot of requirements to engage with our financial system today. And so the big opportunity, I think, is for crypto to change all of this, uh, to democratize access to financial services. And I think there's an opportunity to go further than we are today. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a simple example. To buy cryptocurrency today, you know, generally you need a bank account. And I understand there are Bitcoin ATMs, but I think a good starting point would be for exchanges to build a cash network for consumers to add money to their accounts at brick and mortar retailers. And you know, there's precedent for that, right? There's This is something PayPal has done in the past with Green Dot, where you can go to a 7-Eleven or a CVS or a Dollar General, give the store associates some cash. Cash, they scan a barcode on your device and, and those funds get added to your account. So I think what's very important as we think about the evolution of this market is to ensure that we're building it in the most inclusive way possible with the needs of all consumers in mind so that we fix a lot of the gaps that exist with the financial system as, it, as it's situated today. I agree with all that. I think that, you know, that makes so much sense. We have a new imperative. You know, the world is younger. This nation is younger. But also, we know that the world is browner, right? We know that demographics is shifting to more women. So, and that shouldn't scare people, right? That should just tell us we have to prepare for the future. And so, as we look at, you know, inclusion and, you know, where the demographic shifts are, t shifts are taking place, we have to make sure that we are inclusive age, you know, when it comes to age and making sure that we're in engaging millennials and Zoomers, but also communities of color. We cannot afford to leave them behind because that will be the majority of the marketplace. It sounds like that there's quite a lot of work to do. Uh, just now we discussed uh, the future of where digital assets can go, the potential, what it could become. I want to talk about the near term. We have this Biden EO out the door. Obviously, a bit of research has to go into that. That takes time. But from a ground level, where do we go next on education in this area? If either of you could provide thoughts on the best approach to take, where to start with how to best uh, adopt uh, financial education, uh, you know, not just in traditional legacy institutions or legacy investing parameters, but how do we do this the right way with digital assets, with cryptocurrency, with NFTs, with any other forms of decentralized assets or tokenization that uh, may come up in the coming years? 
I'll start. I think the executive order did actually help with education in Washington. You know, I've been collaborating with the Blockchain Association for the last three years, and now I'm the executive director to the Blockchain Foundation. But, you know, the association represents over 90 companies and has been doing this work to educate staffers. We probably moved the needle, but not that far. So I think what the executive order does now is it gives a mandate to every agency across the federal government and said, you have to look at this thing, right? And and there are deadlines for when you have to look at it from this perspective of what oversight you have, what, some, what are some of the risks, what are some of those opportunities. And I think that's going to force a lot of agencies to become educated much quicker than they would have had to be before. But education is our greatest challenge across the board in Washington, but also at the state level where we're actually seeing the most traction and also, you know, across the nation with consumers, right, with public institutions. So as I mentioned, I'm, you know, I'm the new executive director for the Blockchain Foundation, a new entity. It is a 501c3 that is focused solely on education. It is an industry-wide movement. And we're going to tackle this issue of education in a few ways, but one of them is to create a one-stop shop for information. We're going to create a virtual digital assets library. Across the industry, companies are creating wonderful educational materials, but they're existing in one place and then staying there. So this virtual digital assets library will be populated by the industry. They will get to submit their one-pagers, their white papers their executive summaries, you know, their books. So, and then we'll hire a digital, uh, digital librarian and look to collaborate with the American Library Association so that we can make sure this is disseminated and accessible to people. And another thing we'll do in addition to the digital assets library is create a certificate program for leaders of public institutions, leaders of nonprofits, leaders of advocacy groups, leaders across the nation, leaders of academic institutions, because I've heard from them that they do want to educate their stakeholders, their networks, but they do not want to outsource that. Right? They don't want just crypto people coming and educating. So we have to make sure that we're not just demystifying the language of crypto, that we're not make, just making it accessible, that we're empowering and educating the leaders who actually are trusted by large constituencies. So you know, we're looking at creating a two-day certificate program with universities like Georgetown, where leaders can come, learn, also hear from industry, but also know that, you know, this, this course was created in collaboration with industry and an academic institution that they trust, and that the industry partners will be there as they look at how best to educate their constituency, what are some of the, you know, support that they need, and what are some of the initiatives they may want to implement. So we need more education across the board. We need to make sure that Everybody now, because we see adoption happening with Black and Latino communities, that means it's happening among working class and middle class people. That means sooner than later, the workforce is going to actually be paid in crypto. There was just a study two weeks ago, a few a few weeks ago, that said just that about sixty percent of the workforce said that they would like get they would like to get paid in cryptocurrency. Obviously, we would only do something like that over stablecoin, but the fact that 
HR people are going to start getting these questions. And also, we know that they're going to be asking for training programs around cryptocurrency as well. So this, this issue on education has to be accelerated. We have to make sure governments and public institutions have access to information, educational tools to make sure that they're meeting the needs of their constituents and their stakeholders. Yeah, all great points. And maybe quickly to add one more on the consumer side, you know, I think it's largely a matter of getting the message out there by reaching consumers where they're at. So for instance, in this survey that we conducted, what we found is the number one platform that consumers are going to for cryptocurrency research and information is YouTube. Now, it's probably a good first stop for informing those that already have a vested interest in crypto. But you know what I would say in conclusion, right, this sector is still in such a formative stage. You, you really want to reach consumers with these messages around the importance of diversity and equity and inclusion in cryptocurrency. So they'll be the drivers of change, right? They'll push for it and they'll push for progress in the space and you know, ideally get us to a point where you know this becomes uh, a piece of financial infrastructure that pulls everybody in across all aspects of society, across all corners of the population. And, and that's so startling that the your research showed that the, the greatest source is YouTube, which I knew I feared, but now that we have confirmation, it's concerning. And we know that when people go to YouTube, they're getting all of these sources. Some of them are not accurate. So a little crypto, a little, you know, a little knowledge that's actually accurate of crypto is a dangerous thing because we need people, we need to make sure that people are getting and information that is accurate, that is verifiable, right? That is not going to lead them towards scams. So we definitely have to make sure those access points expand beyond YouTube. Well said. I do want to make one last point. While I'm happy to see that, you know, Black and Latino communities are leading adoption, as I said, that's going to continue to happen in the investment side as well as in the, you know, building products and services on blockchain. But what we know is still abysmal are the gender numbers, right? We know that we're not getting enough Latinas and Black women like me into crypto. And we have to find a way to make sure that we're doing that education. And I do think based on the engagements that I've had, we have to have a different conversation with women, right? The prospect for wealth building through buying Bitcoin is nice, but we need to also talk about professional opportunities within the space as they're thinking about redefining their careers. You know, we know the great resignation at its core is about the potential to work digitally, remotely, but also to be entrepreneurial. So we have to look at, you know, make sure people know their entrepreneurship options within crypto, as well as the ways to fund projects like decentralized autonomous organ organizations, right? And then we also have to make sure people know that their opportunity for skills training is there. So I think for women, there's different motivators and we have to be more intentional about making sure that we're closing the gap on gender exclusion. Cliff, I did have a follow-up there since you brought it up. Why does that gap exist? Uh, or do you know why that gap exists? And what are what are some things we could do to amend that? Yeah, I think, you know, just like, you know, the racial exclusion issue, you know, it's systematic, right? We have a system that is there to exclude. And it's not just there to exclude 
you know, people of color, but women, regardless of socioeconomic background or race. So, but also I think, you know, the motivators for women are different. Women are the largest segments of the world, the world's population. And we know even globally, women are not just heads of household. They are, they are running whole communities, right? They're taking care of children and their parents. And so, so for them, their disposable income is precious, Right. If you have that one hundred dollars extra this month, the prospect of buying Bitcoin, you know, that could be a good return on investment. But that, but also you, you, the college fund is a great return on investment, too. Like when you do that math, you look at it that way. So I think the considerations for women are different, especially when you look at surveys that show women are experiencing burnout, w- women are you know, trying to make it in the professional world as well as home. And then also, you know, the the greatest impact, <laughs> the greatest casualty of COVID were professional women. So I do think we've always had this, you know, gender gap that we've had to tackle with across many industries. But I think post-COVID, and now that we're looking at a, a, an emerging technology that affects you know, financial services that really has a, a, an economic empowerment you know, bent to it, we have to get closer to, you know, women, again, understanding that they are heads of households, but their choices are much, much more, you know, challenging for them. Excellent. Well, this has been a very fascinating discussion, and it sounds like the, there's quite a bit to do in the years ahead for the world of digital assets. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and a huge thank you to Jordan and Clev for the terrific input here today. Uh, we hope we've been enabled to unearth some of the under-discussed aspects of the crypto and digital asset world and give a sense of what's to come for crypto investors, whoever and wherever they may be. To read the accompanying story for this podcast episode, you can search for Crypto Advocates Warn of New Digital Divide as Regulators Begin Inquiries on the S&P Capital IQ Pro platform, or you could find the free link to the story with an internet search of the same title. Once again, I'm David DiMalfetta. Be well and stay safe. Mm-hmm.